If you were to look on the back of a box of cereal, take a loaf of bread and turn it upside down, or look on the backside of a bowl of, or a carton of ice cream, you would see the ingredients label. 1938, Congress passed a law identifying that you should know what you're consuming. And so you have that ingredient label. So you may not know what sodium aluminum phosphate is or what it tastes like, but you need to know it's in your pancake mix. So ingredients are helpful to know when you're consuming them, thus the label. There are other labels and they're warning labels. My guess is if you buy something new, included in the manual, or maybe a sticker on the product will be a warning label. Some of them are helpful and they make sense. Like if you buy a mower, it says, don't put your fingers underneath the mower deck. I mean, that makes sense. Or don't get the curling iron too close to your forehead. Or watch out for oncoming cars. Those, those are important and reasonable warnings. But every once in a while, you run into a warning that kind of makes you scratch your head. For instance, my family bought a new washing machine and inside the manual, I looked it up, it says, do not add gasoline to the wash water. Thank you very much. Or I did some research on this. I found a wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow, that had a warning on it that says, not for highway use. Makes sense. See a guy running down the road with a wheelbarrow on the highway, hey bro, that's not what that was made for. Or here's another one. Those of you who have small children, portable baby strollers that fold up and go in the back of your car, a sticker on the side that says, remove child before folding. <laughs> Makes sense, right? Now the problem is, is you know that all of those warnings have come about because somebody didn't think and didn't really evaluate probably should take the kid out before we fold it, or the highway looks like a great place to move a wheelbarrow down. So warning labels have a point, and they remind us what is dangerous. Maybe growing up you heard this warning about your mouth. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. The third chapter of James is designed to be a warning label. It's designed to be a pretty heavy caution about the dangers of the tongue. Last week we looked at three cautions, which were first, more words equal more accountability. Then good words are a good sign. Reverse is also true, bad words are a bad sign. Also, a small issue can create a big problem. And that was designed to sort of be an overview, and now James, he's not done. He, he could just say, watch what you say, but he knows us well enough to know we need some deeper explanations, things, quite frankly, that might make us stop and go, wow, that's scary. So James is going to give us a series of sober warnings about the danger of the tongue. Just a little warning label on this sermon. This one is heavy. James designs it to be that way. There's phrase after phrase, looking at this issue from multiple perspectives just to help us not only know that the tongue is dangerous, but to feel it deeply, deeply in our bones. So today we're gonna to look at seven ways that our words are dangerous. So if you're a note taker, there's seven ways that our words are dangerous, and they all start with the word D, or the letter D. So number one, our words can be destructive. In James chapter three and verse five, he uses the illustration of a forest fire. 
and the devastating effect of that fire. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And then James says, the tongue is a fire. So he's connecting that to the forest fire issue. And then he says, a world of unrighteousness. Those of you who have traveled out west, you may have an image in your mind of a forest fire after it's burned through the brush and the trees. You see the landscape that is scorched. And James describes the power of the tongue to be just that, a verbal scorched earth. Maybe you grew up in a home like that. Maybe you have friends that are like that. Maybe, maybe you're like that. Which, by the way, if you're listening to this today and you're not yet a Christian, you're going to see from the Bible some pretty clear commands, some sober reminders of the power of what the tongue can do negatively. And if you're not a Christian yet, my hope would be is that you'd, one, understand how clearly the Bible speaks to things. Secondly, that you'd come to realize, man, I've seen like this scorched earth thing verbally and kind of I would want you to be a little concerned about what's going on in your own heart. And then third, if you're a Christian, this is the kind of behavior that James says, if you know Jesus, this needs to be put off. Like, we ought not to be like this. We've been changed by the work of grace so that it could then flow out of our mouths. James says that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. That word unrighteous means not in line with God's character. It's two words that are put together that mean not just. So the idea is that how God would want the world to operate and the kind of words that he would want us to use, the way in which we're living and how we're talking just doesn't fit with how God would want us to be living and talking. He says that it's a world of unrighteousness. Last week I said that words create worlds, but notice the kind of world that is created. It's a world of unrighteousness. I, I trust that you know, but I would want you to feel that the tongue is a gateway for a whole realm of wickedness, or the tongue has the ability to create a whole culture of devastation and destruction. Think, for instance, of a clip that you might see online of some physical fight, a brawl. I trust that you know that that brawl started more than likely with a brawl of words. Or think of the way in which sinful words can lead to escalations of other kinds. Think of a home that's marked by abusive words, ridiculing words, words that on the outside you wouldn't see that somebody bears the scars, but inside deep levels of insecurity, pain, and frustration. In fact, some of you may know, and it may even be true of your home right now, that the entire culture of your home or of your relationship with your roommates or the office environment has a shadow over it because of the negative and destructive power of words. James wants us to know that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Here's the second thing. Our words can be defining meaning they characterize us. James says this, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. James would want us to know that our tones and our words really matter. That how you talk, probably more than anything, really defines your name, your reputation, your effect on other people. 
James says that this tongue is set among our members. I take it to mean something similar that he says in chapter three and verse five, that it's a small member, but it boasts of great things. So James is saying, you've got a tongue. It's a physical tongue. It's a small tongue. It's set among your members, but it has a disproportionate level of power of what it can do, positively and negatively. And in this context, James is more focused on the negative. He says that the tongue can stain the entire body. Means, he means that the tongue can pollute the entire person. One commentator says this, the sins committed with the tongue spread spiritual pollution to the whole person. Have you ever had it happen where you noticed somebody, just kind of saw them maybe at work or church or at school, and you think, they seem like a pretty awesome person. Maybe you stalked them online, saw them on a social media platform, but then when you got to know them and you heard them open their mouth, you were like, "Uh uh-oh. Maybe you're a single adult, you went out on a date with someone, you thought, this looks like a pretty nice person. Over dinner, you're like, yeah, this is over. (laughs) Really quick. Or maybe you find yourself talking about negative things all the time. And before you know it, your negative talk has actually doesn't help your bitter feelings. It actually makes it worse. The more you talk, the harder it gets. There's been some times when my wife and I have been talking about something and she'll say something like this. I, I need to share something with you, but I, I need you to not respond because I'm just about over it. And if you get upset, I'm going to be back to where I was. Sometimes talking helps. Sometimes talking actually makes it worse, especially if we talk in the wrong way. James says the tongue can stain the whole body. To be honest, some of you may have a reputation of having a really nice external demeanor, but behind the scenes, people know that when you talk, it's just awful. And if you claim to be a Christian, and that goes together... It actually doesn't go together, which is why James puts the matter of the tongue right after talking about the combination of faith and works. The tongue, he says, stains the whole body. So our words can be defining, our words can be destructive. Here's the third thing, our words can be devastating. He says, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Wow. Here he's talking about the massive effects, like you light your house on fire, like you're a verbal arsonist. You, you set things on fire, you blow up the office, you, you blow up your marriage, you blow up your relationships, you've blown up the relationship with your kids, and if you trace it back, the issue is not personality conflict. The issue is actually your inability to stop saying hurtful things. Last week we looked about the way that the tongue can be predictive about your future. But I also trust that you know that how you talk determines the people that are attracted to you. It determines even the behaviors that you would justify and in some cases learn from other people by their wicked talking or you end up teaching them to talk that way. Proverbs 22, 24 says, make no friendship with a man given to anger nor Go with a wrathful man, lest he learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. You just, you pick up the behaviors of people that are around you. If you're a person that easily loses your temper, suddenly verbally lashing out at people, don't be surprised if people around you begin to do the same. 
You're in a position of authority, you do that to other people, your employees are gonna do it to others. You're a parent, your kids are gonna begin to model that. One of the funny things now is a dad with more adult children than in the house children is there's particular behaviors that, in particular my sons, have adopted that make me smile because they used to mock me for those things. For instance, they used to make fun of my laugh all the time. I have an internal sucking sound laugh like this. <laughs> That's how I laugh. And they used to laugh at me like that all the time. Guess what, now they do it too. I've infected them with my <laughs> laugh. It's one thing with how you laugh. It's another, what about negative tones? What if, what if I spoke to Sarah, my wife, in a way that was always sharp and rude? Would it not surprise you if they talked to their future spouses that way? What if I talked in a way that was constantly demeaning of others? They would learn that that behavior is not only acceptable, they would learn that it's normal. You see, it's one thing to have that behavior be something that you emulate, but friend, it becomes something even different when others around you begin to mimic your behavior, and you know that that happens. And in so doing, you're setting your, the entire course of your life on fire. Listen, if you're a parent, a coach, a leader, you're a boss, somebody who provides spiritual care, pastors, like our tones and our words matter. It can create a really, really negative an unhelpful environment. Deuteronomy 20 and verse eight says that a soldier going out to battle should go home if he's fearful, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. I've seen it way too much where someone burns their most closest relationships because of the sinfulness of the words that they use. The people around them don't show anything physically, but internally there's deep wounds. Some of you listening to this message, you know that that's you. Because of who knows why, maybe something that happened in your past because of how you were raised, because of just deep levels of insecurity or frustration, you use demeaning words, ridiculing words, cruel words, angry words, because you want what you want, and what you are doing is setting on fire your spouse, your kids, your friends' lives. So our words can be devastating. Here's the fourth one. Our words can be demonic. Wow. I mean, at this point, you would think, James, we get the point, we got you, we got you. No, he's, he's pressing in. I think because James knows what we know. This is a problem. He says, and set on fire by hell. Wow. This is very similar to what James said in chapter two where he refers to somebody saying, you believe in God? Well, he says, you do well. Even the demons believe that. So James is not unfamiliar with using this kind of sort of shock and awe language. He intends for us to know that our words can actually be a part of the devil's strategy. Think of that for a moment. Think of the fact that the words that you or I use can be part of the way that Satan actually does his work. Some of you may be thinking, well, this is just pushing us a little bit too far, but let me, 
illustrate this from Matthew 16, where when Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to suffer, die, and be raised again the third day, Peter responded and said, Lord, this will never happen to you. And what did Jesus say? Jesus rebuked him sharply, and he said, get behind me, Satan. That's a bad day in Peter's life, right? <laughs> You've probably been around here long enough, you may have heard me say before, you know, imagine Peter goes home that night and he sa- his wife asks him, how was your day following Jesus? He's like, yeah, not good. He's like, why is it not good? Yeah, Jesus called me Satan today. <laughs> it's a bad day when you're a disciple and get called Satan, right? Well, why did he call him Satan? Because his words reflected the very agenda of the enemy. Do you think that we don't do that? Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter five, they make an appearance of generosity and Peter confronts them and says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So church, the thing that we have to wrestle with, for those of you who are Christians, is the attack of the enemy doesn't always come from people who are anti-God or anti-church or anti-Jesus. In fact, that, the, the deployment of the enemy's devices come both from the outside and from the inside. Historically, sure, the devil has used outside forces to persecute the church, to do damage to the church, but if you study church history, read the epistles, he also uses the internal wars of religious people to do damage to the church. And in our day and age of just widespread information, the internet age, there's a caution we just, we need to understand here. At one level, I'm thankful for the advent of so much information because it's increased accountability. Things are known about um, things inside and outside of the church. Error can be refuted in ways that maybe a generation ago wouldn't have been able to be refuted in the way that it is today, or things become public that should be made public that wouldn't have been public. So there's a greater level of accountability. So at one level, I'm thankful for that. We should be thankful for that. But on the other hand, it's also created a a level of irresponsibility. And this requires for you, if you're a Christian, to have a great level of discernment. Because it's remarkable what somebody could write, produce a video, create a post, and suddenly level some sort of accusation, mischaracterization, or suspicion, and then people will take that, send that, push that around as if that's true, when it actually isn't. And so therefore, I would just tell you, be careful about what you believe, test it. Ask somebody who you respect, what do you know about this writer, this person, this author? And before you jump on it like, oh, that's the answer to everything that's wrong with Christianity, just take a moment, (laughs) take a breath, and be sure that the source that you're trusting is trustworthy. In some cases, a phone, a video, a computer with no level of accountability with any board, any directors, just boom, sending stuff out as if it's the truth, can create and has created a whole lot of problems. The devil wants the church of Jesus Christ discouraged. He wants the church divided. He wants the church discredited. He wants believers, listen, to gossip about each other. He wants believers to slander each other. He wants us to accuse each other so that what happens inside the church doesn't look anything different than anything outside the church. 
He wants friends to be separated, marriages to fall apart, churches to split, movements to be hindered, and the gospel to be stopped. That's his strategy. It's the warning that Paul gives in Galatians 5 where he says, love each other. If you don't, you're going to end up destroying one another. And how do we destroy each other? By our words. So our words can actually be demonic. Here's another one. Our words can be difficult to control. He says this, for every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Now he doesn't mean that's impossible, like, like you, you, there's no way, just so forget about it, let your tongue just do whatever it wants and say whatever you want. No, no, no. He means this, that if you understand the message of what he's pushing into here, there will be this overwhelming sense of God help me. What he's saying is, if you try and do this on your own strength without the defining power of the Spirit by the risen Christ flowing through you, changing your heart, you will never be able to control the tongue. So we ought not be surprised when those who don't know Christ talk in a way that's awful. We ought to be shocked to pieces, like just freaking out if people who name the name of Christ talk like people who don't know Jesus. No human being can tame the tongue. Augustine, a North African theologian who lived in the 300s, said, when the tongue is tamed, we confess that this is brought about by the pity, the help, and the grace of God. Maybe an application point would be that every morning when you wake up, perhaps while you're brushing your teeth, you have this thought and begin to pray, Lord, help me to control this very part of my anatomy today because more sin comes from this part of my body probably than anything else. Our words can be difficult to control. Number six, our words can be deadly. In verse eight, he says, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's almost as though he imagines something that's ready to strike, like a snake or a cat. I, I said that, you sensed bitterness, didn't you, when I said that? I, I think I am. Here's what happened. We added this cute little cat named Gabby in our house in Michigan. She's a cat that lived out in the garage. She's a fierce hunter, really, really fun. She didn't get along with our dog well, surprise, surprise. And so one time I tried to create a reconciliation moment between them and I, I held Gabby while I was sitting on the couch as I brought my dog closer and the dog started sniffing and she started hissing and, I, and at that point I should have you know, backed up and realized that I'm no cat whisperer or a dog whisperer. But no, I, was, I started petting her, it's okay Gabby, it's okay. And she started to squirm more, I squeezed tighter and then she got her paw out. And when I wasn't looking, she went like that. And she cut me across my nose and face, she got me good. And the reconciliation party was over at that point. <laughs> And that's the idea of the tongue. It's a restless evil. It's ready to strike. Do you see your tongue that way? Do you, do you see it with that level of caution and care? Uh, imagine if a friend has a, a snake and he or she asks you, you want to hold it? And you're like, oh. There's just this fear, or, or some of you who are deathly afraid if a mouse ran through your office, you, you jump on top of the table because you're afraid you know, of all the people who've been killed by mice over the last year. It's incredible. So you're just you're deathly afraid of them. And, um, but when it comes to our tongue, we, we treat our tongues like it's a domesticated little animal. And yet James would have us know this is 
full of deadly poison. You know, you can say something and it sticks with somebody for the rest of their life. There, there's words that have been spoken to me. Like, I, I remember where I was. Like, I could, I could pull that memory up in an instant. It's not gonna go away. I have to cover it. Words can strike. Wounds can, words can wound Words can create pain and trauma. Words can separate friends. Words can destroy trust. Words can create doubt. Words can enact revenge. Words can infect with deadly poison. It's, it's that serious. It just seems that James wants us to be thinking a lot more about our tongues. And if you're a Christian, it means that Jesus has so changed your heart that it must then affect how you talk. Finally, our words can be deceptive. To drive this point home, he says, with it, our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And then he gives three illustrations of a spring, a salt pond, a fig tree. His point is that we can be so deceptive with our tongues because we think it's okay to at one moment be saying amazing things about God and then saying awful things about people. We can be in one moment thinking and saying and talking about the holiness of God. God is holy. He's amazing. He's so gracious. And did you hear about so-and-so last week? And the tragedy is often Sundays are the day when that happens the most. Or for some of us, the most dangerous moment on Sunday is the car ride home where we've sung great songs and then we flay people in the privacy of our own cars. James wants us to think of the people who we might be tempted to curse. Who, who is your enemy? Who, who are the people who, you, who you'd be tempted to say right now, you know what, I hate them. Who are you against? Who are you scared of? Who do you oppose? James cautions here about talking about anyone in a way that doesn't fit with acknowledging that they're an image bearer. Even the person who you strongly disagree with in areas of belief and policy and practice, you could disagree on all of those, but there's a line that you cross that's inappropriate when you curse them and you fail to realize that person is made in the image of God. Or let me make it even a little more practical. Imagine you're driving down the road. This is how quickly it happens. So you're, 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 you're driving down the road, got your little jam list on. Let's go with, uh, let's say, turn on 90s praise music. So you're like, shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing, honor. And, and, and as you're just, you're jamming, and all of a sudden somebody cuts you off. Here's what happens. Power and praise. You forgot the words. You're just humming along, and all of a sudden, someone comes up, and you're like, "What an idiot! What are you doing?" Shout to the Lord, all the earth. The fact of the matter is, is we know that we do that. We can swing just like that. You could hear this great message about the tongue. You could be like, "You know, what? I'm not going to do that. Walk out this door, or sit in your living room, or come out of the chapel, and you can let it roll." and be like, wait a minute. It's so easy, it's so common. Which is why James uses some very apparent illustrations. A spring, a fig tree, and a salt pond. These aren't meant to make one single point. Things 
don't go together. They shouldn't go together. And what James is saying, you can't be praising God and cursing people. Like, you can't do that. Why? Because when Jesus transforms a heart, he transforms it completely. It doesn't mean that a Christian is perfect, but it means that you now have new desires, new longings, and those new realities affect your whole being, including how you talk. James would want us to know that faith is supposed to work, and it's supposed to work especially with our words. He gives us a warning label. Our words can be destructive, they can be defining, they can be devastating, they can be demonic, they can be difficult, they can be deadly, they can be deceptive. So if you're not yet a Christian, can I just ask you a question, and that's this. Friend, how in the world are you gonna control your tongue when your heart is out of control? Because you know there's a direct line between what you say and what you love, like what you're after, like we talk about the things that we love. We say things that are mean because of what we want. And the hope of the gospel is that Jesus comes to change the source of where our speech comes from. And it could be that you're just broken over how you talk. That could be the very entryway, the, the door that God kind of opens, and then you begin to think, well, I've got a lot of other areas of my life that I need transformation. I'm sure you do. Every, every person does. Every person who comes to Christ realizes, I need Jesus to take over my mouth, my eyes, my money, my sexuality, my work, how my rest. I need Jesus just to come and take over. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, it means you've come to an end of yourself. You give up and you say, I can't do this. I need you to help me. And not just with my tongue. I need you to help me with my life. That's what it means to come to Christ. And for those of you who are Christians, like that happened, Right? You put your trust in Jesus. And so then, the beautiful thing that happens is that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, allows our tongues to say things that reflect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. And when those things become true, it's a reminder, oh yeah, faith really does work. And not only not only do we need to be careful what we say, but we also can rejoice at the way in which Jesus changes what we say. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. Lord Jesus, we come and ask for your help to direct our lives, our hearts, to what specific ways that are mouths do not reflect the image, the picture, and the practice of what you want us to be. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, help us even this day to take one further step in repenting from where our words are not helpful and sinful. Pray, Lord, for those who don't know you yet as Lord and Savior, that this message on the tongue might be the doorway that opens up a really big and important conversation about their eternal destiny, their future after they die, and for that matter, how they're going to live right now. So, Lord, use your word, we pray, to help us, because we need it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.